Welcome to Miller Kane, A True and Exact History, a serialized novel by Samuel Ligon, published for the first time in The Inlander and broadcast by Spokane Public Radio. Miller Kane is made possible by Sprint and The Inlander. This is Chapter 6 of the Miller Kane podcast, which collects five weekly installments in one episode. A new chapter will be released as a podcast each Thursday until the novel reaches its conclusion. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest chapter as soon as it's available. Previously on Miller Kane. Miller is doing his best to keep eight-year-old Carlene Callahan safe and entertained while her mother is in prison for shooting and injuring her estranged ex-husband. On the road in an old motorhome, Miller and Carlene's latest stop is Walla Walla, Washington, where they've been staying with Avery, Miller's old college professor and mentor. Miller's latest attempt to distract Carlene is a day trip to Pendleton, Oregon for the annual Roundup Rodeo. Now, here's author Samuel Ligon. Chapter 6, Part 1. They made it to the Roundup in time for the grand entry, in time for Miller and Avery to get a beer and Carlene to get pizza and pretzels and ice cream and licorice. The stands, a sea of cowboy hats and feed caps on the men, most of the women bareheaded, everyone wearing sunglasses. And after the first riders, flag bearers, rode into the stadium bearing American and Canadian and tribal flags, and after the anthem was sung... All those cowboy hats and feed caps held over hearts went back onto heads, the announcer's voice booming that he was pleased to present the queen and her royal court. The queen, Carlene said, and her royal court, Miller said. Entering from the east, the announcer said, Princess Delia Flynn. Oh, Carlene said. Into the arena charged a princess, glorious in her white cowgirl hat and pink fuzzy chaps flapping, waving to the crowd like mad. And before she was halfway across the field, another princess was introduced from the west entrance, and then another from the east, and another from the west, all of them riding and waving, the spindly lower legs of their horses a blur of pink wrapping, the same pink as their chaps, until the queen herself was introduced. Oh, Carlene said again as the queen charged into the arena, jumping over a low bumper on the far side of the track and barreling across the grass infield, then over another low bumper and onto the track itself. Cowgirl princesses flying behind her, the crowd cheering, flag bearers riding, hell-bent for leather behind the royal entourage, music booming. Let her buck, the announcer said, and the crowd shouted, let her buck. And then the president of the roundup was introduced, charging onto the dirt track amongst the swirl of riders, the theme from Bonanza blaring. The announcer shouting, the wild and woolly west is alive, folks. You've got to say it with me now. Let her buck. And everyone shouted it again. Carlene loudest, a bucking bronco erupting from one of the chutes, its rider a ragdoll flopping but holding on. The bucking horse of the year, the announcer reported. And again, the crowd went wild, as did the horse and rider bucking around the grass infield. 
Three black-shirted, black-hatted, sunglass-wearing, alpaca-chapped rodeo authorities surrounded the bronc, hurting it, one of the animal-handling cops pulling the rider onto his own horse, the other two leading the bucking horse off the field. A second saddle bronc rider burst from a chute, flipping and flopping and bucking and bronking until he too was surrounded by the alpaca-chapped animal authorities. This is definitely better than baseball, Avery said. Why wasn't everyone doing this all the time? Let her buck, Carlene yelled as the Indian relay started, each rider racing bareback around the track, sliding off his first horse while still in motion and jumping onto the next, then around again and onto another, a horse and human frenzy. It's amazing, Carlene said. It is, Miller said. Mom wouldn't like it, Carlene said. I think you're right, Miller said. But I like it, Carlene said, until a cowboy launched himself from a galloping horse onto a charging steer, taking the animal down by its horns and twisting him by his head into the dirt. They got another beer. They got popcorn and popsicles and nachos and french fries. Back at their seats, the bull riding was much better than the steer wrestling, as far as Carlene was concerned, because the bulls always won. I didn't know cowboys were this real, Carlene said. I didn't either, Miller said. Their names were Boudreaux and Tristan and Tanner and Chance. And the barrel racing cowgirls were Tiller and Chandra and Raylan and Kai. Carlene gripped Miller's hand. Why does she have to whip him, she said. To make him go faster, Miller said. I thought that's why she kicked him, Carlene said. I don't think it hurts him, Miller said. I think it's just to remind him. She really loves him, Carlene said. Look how she pets him. And how she leans in to talk to him, Miller said. If it is a him, it is, Miller said. Let her buck, Carlene said. And after the barrel racing, they headed toward the teepees in the tribal village, hundreds of them. Carlene transfixed by a girl in a beaded dress, shells jingling from strings down her chest and back. Do you have to be an Indian to wear that? Carlene whispered to Miller. I think so, Miller said, but there are other things you can wear. And Carlene said, like what? And Miller said, lots of things. They followed the girl to a grassy area where drummers were singing and driving the dancers. They watched and listened, and when it was over, they walked out of the roundup toward Avery's car. I could probably wear a cowgirl hat, Carlene said. Sure you could, Miller said. They had one more day of rodeo, plus the pageant tomorrow night, Happy Canyon, which Miller was dreading. A Buffalo Bill, Wild West show celebrating something. If a French dude can name his wine Cayuse, Avery said, you can wear a cowgirl hat. And to Miller, you ever been to that tasting room? Miller shook his head. I went a couple years ago, Avery said. All these stupid names for the wine. Widowmaker. Bionic frog, stuff like that. The vineyard's only a few miles from the mission on what used to be Cayuse land, but there's no mention of what happened. The winemaker, a wine duke from France, come to wrest holy juice from the rocky western soil. It's about the struggle of the vines, they tell you, the biodynamic farming method. All this bull. I said to the woman there, I said, who names these wines anyway? And she said, Christophe himself, probably. That's the wine duke. And I said, well, I got an idea for some names. How about a massacre white? Or maybe an execution red, which I thought was pretty damn funny. I mean, really. But she didn't laugh. Miller didn't laugh either. I don't get it, Carlene said. 
That's because it's not really funny, Avery said. They drove in silence for a while toward Shelley's house in Legrand, where they'd left the motor home that morning. Laura Ingalls Wilder wasn't a cowgirl, Carlene said, because she was a pioneer. That's true, Avery said, and a farmer, Miller said. But she loved horses, Carlene said, and she was a writer, too, Miller said. People can be lots of things, Avery said. I could wear a bonnet, Carlene said. Sure you could, Miller said. Do you think I could go back to school now, Carlene said. It was the second week of September, and she hadn't asked for days. She wanted a normal life. Of course she did. Maybe he'd settle them someplace safe, enroll her in school till Lizzie got out. But right now, we're working on our history book, Miller said. Which is like school, Avery said, traveling, seeing stuff. Carlene didn't say anything. Avery said, did I tell you Shelley's niece is coming for dinner? Miller could study third grade curriculum and start teaching her, so that when she did start up again, January, say, or sooner even, she wouldn't be behind. Not that she'd be behind as smart as she was. Bella's her name, Avery said. I want to go to school, Carlene said. I know you do, Miller said. We'll figure it out. When, Carlene said. Soon, Miller said, but he didn't know when or where. She might have a horse, Avery said, this Bella, somewhere far away. Really? Carlene said. Or a steer, or a donkey, or a bull. Okay, Catman, Carlene said. Avery laughed. I think I'm going to Catman do, he said. Carlene laughed too. Miller didn't know how he'd enrolled her if she wasn't his kid. They'd have to make up a story. Lies on top of lies. Or maybe he'd just say she was his kid, and who could say otherwise? Maybe another day of rodeo was just what they needed, even if it did include a lying Wild West show. At least there'd be cowgirls and princesses and clowns and broncos and cowboys and Indians and hot dogs. Avery was right. The rodeo was better than baseball. Chapter 6, Part 2. Shelley's niece, Bella, did not have a donkey or a horse, but she did have a mini bike, a Honda 50, loud and stinky and fantastic. Carlene was afraid of it. Bella had her sit on it in the backyard, going nowhere, then showed her how to kickstart it, which Carlene did not like. Bella turned the bike off and they talked for a while in the grass, then wandered into the woods behind the house. Those trails go for miles, Shelley said. Miller and Avery and Shelley and her sister Monica were drinking gin and tonics on Shelley's back deck, except for Avery, who was drinking wine. Miller felt like a 15-year-old kid at a party where couples were pairing off, disappearing into back bedrooms. On the drive down from Walla Walla, Avery had called Shelley his special friend. And now it seemed as though Monica might become Miller's special friend. Carlene in the woods with Bella wandering the trails for hours, possibly. Days, even. Miller hadn't had a special friend since the Lawton massacre over a year ago. And Monica was funny and pretty and smart, sharing a joint with him in front of Shelley's house after the third round of drinks, asking for a tour of the motor home. He let her in, hoping she had a cat. All he could smell was waffles. And there were donut boxes and chip bags and candy wrappers scattered all over the couch and counters. This is cool, she said. Let's hear the stereo. Miller turned on some Lucinda. 
Nice, she said. How's the bed? Pretty good, Miller said. And they talked about beds. Futons and Haida beds, Murphy beds and California kings, Castro convertibles and day beds. Monica sort of teasing with her eyes, finally saying, we're not going to take off our clothes or anything, so don't worry. And then she was kissing him, and he was kissing her, and there wasn't enough air to breathe. Kissing Monica was the best thing Miller could imagine. Kissing and everything kissing might lead to. Their kisses felt like promises. No reason to stop here, Miller promised. No reason to keep all our clothes on. And Monica seemed to agree, but maybe this wasn't quite the time. It was still light out and the kids were around somewhere, but later, yes, her kisses suggested. And if they could just get a little closer, but then Carlene screamed, let her buck, and the mini bike roared to life. Miller and Monica jerked upright and peeked through the blinds in time to see Carlene climbing onto the bike behind Bella and wrapping her arms around her before they disappeared into the woods. Is that safe? Miller said, and Monica said, that thing only goes 15 miles an hour. And then they were kissing again, negotiating what might be possible, which seemed like a lot. Everything really, hours and hours to go. It was only seven. But before the children could return, they sat up and straightened themselves out, then started kissing again, then pulled themselves apart to make themselves presentable, then started kissing again, getting a little desperate. And if they didn't stop now, but they did stop. They were adults. There were children somewhere. They went back to Shelley's deck and had another gin and tonic. Avery told a story about a goat his neighbor had who could open a bottle of beer with his teeth and drink it in one long pull. And Shelley told a story about her college roommate opening bottles of beer with her eye socket. Avery and Shelley holding hands, Monica and Miller looking at each other, knowing what they knew, how barriers would be falling like Berlin walls across eastern Oregon tonight. They made another drink. The minibike was a vague swarm of mosquitoes buzzwhining toward them. Then the girls were back. Bella killing the engine, helmets falling to the lawn, the girls scrambling toward the deck, calling, can we have a sleepover? Can we? Of course you can, Miller said. And Liz said, absolutely. I want to show Bella the moho, Carlene said. Sure, Miller said. I better get dinner going, Shelley said. What can I do to help, Monica said. Or me, Miller said, to help. Monica smiled. Come on, she said. I'll show you Shelly's house. She led him downstairs, and they kissed some more. Why do we have to have all these stupid kids anyway? Monica said, imitating George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. And Miller said, beautiful, stupid old building alone. And Monica said, Bedford Falls, yay! Throwing up her arms like George Bailey, discovering that he really did have a wonderful life. They needed to help upstairs. They needed to be presentable. They needed to get the children to bed as soon as possible. They made salad while Shelley and Avery cooked salmon and eggplant on the grill. They kept brushing against each other, Monica telling Miller how she'd never been married, how she owned a distillery in Baker City. Maybe they'd try some of her whiskey later. A fantastic idea. They took the salad outside, Carlene and Bella wanting nothing to do with them. When Miller called them for dinner, they asked if they could eat in the motorhome, which was fine. And after dinner, they wondered if they could sleep in the motorhome, which was also fine. Shelley had two bedrooms in her basement, separated by a bathroom, Brady Bunch style. There would be no reason for anyone to get any sleep whatsoever tonight. 
But first, Bella had to go home for pajamas and books and a suitcase full of Barbies with whom to populate Carlene's care clinic. While she and Monica walked to their house, Carlene called her mom. Miller was thinking how nice it would be to have a cigarette, but he didn't smoke anymore. Avery and Shelley were doing dishes in the kitchen. Miller wasn't helping at all. He'd have to do something heroic tomorrow to make up for being such a bad guest. Maybe Monica would give Miller a job in her distillery, not that he had any skills. Legrand was pretty damn far from everything. Maybe they didn't need to keep driving. Maybe this was where they should be. Miller walked to the motorhome to get another bottle of wine. They were real, Carlene said into the phone. You know who, the cowgirls and princesses. Miller sat in a wooden chair outside the motorhome. There's nothing bad about it, Carlene said. Indian princesses, too, part of Happy Canyon. No, it is real, Miller said. Why couldn't Lizzie just let her be a kid? She was so sweet and good. But Lizzie had her own problems, stuck in jail, far from her daughter. I love you too, Carlene said. It was quiet for a minute. And then Carlene asked for Noreen Kane, Miller's mother. She'd been calling her nearly every day since they'd left Spokane. And why not? It was probably good for both of them. Hi, Noreen. She said, it's Carlene. Yes, she said, I wanted to tell you about my day. We went to the Roundup, she said, in Pendleton. And she told Miller's mother about the cowgirls and Indians, the queen and princesses, her new friend Bella, almost 10 years old, who had a minibike called Pet and Patty, named after the Mustangs in Little House on the Prairie. She was really funny and nice, Bella, Carlene's new friend. It was good she had Noreen. Maybe she should call Dina, too, and Grace and Edison and Kara out on the peninsula. But those were grown women. She needed kid friends. I love you too, she said. But you know what, she said? We're going to Happy Canyon tomorrow, she said, after the rodeo. It's a Wild West pageant. I might wear a cowgirl hat. Miller said I could get one. He heard Monica and Bella down the road moving toward them. I love you too, Carlene said again. Bella flew past him wearing a backpack and carrying a small pink plastic suitcase, probably filled with Barbies. He turned and watched Monica approach, smiling. He smiled back. Everything was about to happen. He stood to greet her. They didn't embrace or kiss, but they wanted to, and they would soon. They went into the motorhome where the girls were furiously playing. The Barbie care clinic opened. Barbies scattered everywhere. Carlene's face was flushed, her eyes shiny. Good night, Miller, she said. We're fine here now. I know you are, Miller said. I love you. He'd never said that to her before. I love you too, she said. And then Miller and Monica headed to their Brady Bunch bedrooms in Shelley's basement, where they would stay up all night. A great end to a nearly perfect day, because even after feeling bad about school, Carlene had a new friend, and Miller had a special friend, and was feeling how good and right everything was as he and Monica walked away from the motorhome, where the girls would play all night long, none of them knowing that everything would go to hell tomorrow. Chapter 6, Part 3. 
The day everything went to hell started as good as the night that bled into it. Miller and Monica still in their Brady Bunch bedrooms. Miller hadn't met a woman like Monica in a long time, maybe ever. Not that anyone was making promises. Not after one night. They could hear Shelly and Avery upstairs early, banging around the kitchen, the smell of coffee wafting down, then bacon. Jesus, they were hungry. Miller took a shower in the Brady Bunch bathroom, Monica joining him halfway through. They couldn't get enough of each other. When they finally went upstairs, the girls hadn't arrived from the motorhome yet. You're looking fit and fresh, Avery said. Miller was feeling fit and fresh. Who's got a cigarette, he said. He didn't know why he said that. Nobody had one, thank God. Maybe we'll have dinner again tonight, Avery said. Sure, Miller said. I've got something, Monica said, I could maybe get out of. Miller nodded at her. Why shouldn't the good times go on forever, or at least for a little while? Carlene and Bella burst into the kitchen. Can Bella come to the rodeo with us, Carlene said. And Monica said, Bella's got school. Oh, Carlene said. Can Carlene come to school with me? Bella said. Yeah, Carlene said. That wouldn't work, Monica said. You're in different grades. So, Bella said. Maybe we'll have dinner again, Monica said. How about that? We're going to Happy Canyon, Carlene said. Maybe another sleepover, Bella said. Yeah, Carlene said. Sure, Monica said. Sure, Miller said. It didn't feel early because it was still so damn late. But it didn't feel late. At some point, the lack of sleep would catch up with them, but it hadn't yet. They went to the rodeo, which was as good as yesterday. It was only too bad Bella and Monica weren't there with them. But they'd see Bella and Monica later. There were cowgirls again and princesses and lots of junk food, and they had dinner in a giant tent set up in a restaurant parking lot packed with people in town for the roundup. Miller drank Monica's whiskey, which was good. Avery drank a glass of wine. Carlene wanted a cowgirl hat, so they walked through Roy Rayleigh Park and got her one, and then she wondered if she could get Bella something, a present. Miller realizing he should have been giving her money of her own these last few months. Do you get an allowance, he asked her. Five dollars a week, she said. Miller handed her a fifty. That's for summer, he said, because I forgot before. Thanks, Carlene said. She was wearing her new cowgirl hat, which was also a princess hat, a crown of sparkly beads sewn into its front, the same sparkly beads lining its brim. And here's something from me, Avery said, holding out a bill. A hundred dollars, Carlene said. Shh, Avery said. For what, Carlene said. For you, Avery said, to buy something with. Her face was flushed. I've never had this much money before, she whispered. Miller wanted to give her more money, all of it. Someday she would have it all, or most of it anyway, but she didn't know that yet, and she wasn't ruined and probably never would be, no matter how much they gave her. At least he hoped that was true. Thank you, Avery, she said. Thank you, Miller. You're welcome, the men said, and they walked from booth to booth, shopping. At some point, Miller was going to be tired, probably tomorrow, his third day without sleep. He and Monica had been texting each other all manner of fantastic filth. He couldn't wait to get through Happy Canyon and back to her so they could stay up all night again. Carlene bought Bella a cowgirl hat and a beaded necklace and a ring for herself, but she still had a lot of money left. You don't have to spend it all, Miller said. I don't have anywhere to put it, she said. Let's get you a wallet, Miller said, or a purse. Let's get both, Avery said. Carlene found a deerskin wallet and a beaded buckskin bag. 
I'll cover those, Avery said, reaching for his wallet. And Miller said, we'll both cover them. And Carlene said, thanks, guys. And then it was time for Happy Canyon, which had its own building on the other side of the arena. It took forever to get there. Miller's phone buzzing in his pocket with texts from Monica as they walked and finally arrived and found their seats and settled in. The whole thing much cooler than Miller thought it would be, with an orchestra and all kinds of animals, but it was also predictably weird. A history of the West, starting with the Indians, then the whites arriving, most of it pretty well handled, but also filled with all kinds of horse crap and gun smoke, Lewis and Clark, stagecoaches and square dancing, outlaws and outhouses, a cowboy and Indian show Carlene loved, her eyes shiny under her cowgirl hat, the story ultimately one of domestication, taming, like Buffalo Bill's Wild West, always ending with the attack on the settler's cabin. Bill himself riding in to save the white woman from marauding Indians. All the wildness of the West drained, controlled, contained, the hearth established and preserved. The attack on the settler's cabin wasn't enacted at Happy Canyon, but there was lots of dancing in an adorable Western town that had risen from the land. Everyone was happy. Pioneers, cowboys, Indians, a fantastic past leading to an even better future. The action seemed to be heading toward conclusion finally. Everyone swirling, Carlene in her cowgirl hat wrapped. The actors all on stage now, bowing. The orchestra playing triumphant music. The crowd cheering, half of them up and out of their seats already headed for the aisles. That was cool, Carlene said. But I'm not sure it was true. Me neither, Miller said. Me neither, Avery said. But I liked it, Carlene said. Me too, Miller said. Avery stood and they followed him into the crowd, up the aisles and through the tunnel into the lobby where there was a bar and concessions. Carlene and Avery went to the bathroom while Miller scrolled through Monica's recent texts, some of which made use of Libby Custer's language, about riding tomboy, riding cowgirl, riding this, riding that. They could both use a good ride, Miller wrote back. Monica sending a picture, Miller looked at right there in the lobby, jammed with people getting drinks at the bar, waiting in line for the bathroom, funneling toward the exit and outside, Monica in his phone, feeding his hunger, people everywhere and nowhere because it was only him and her. He could not wait to get back to LeGrand. He wasn't tired at all. When he came out of his phone and back into the lobby, Avery was walking toward him, agitated, his eyes hot and urgent. Miller's antenna twitched. He scanned the room, jammed with people, but nothing seemed wrong. Avery whispered, you've got a problem, man, and handed Miller a piece of paper. What? Miller said. Look, Avery said, shifting his eyes this way and that. Miller unfolded the paper, his stomach churning before he even saw what it was. Everything going to hell gradually, Avery vibrating in front of him, then all at once as he saw the side-by-side photographs of him and Carlene under stacked text that read, reward, 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 missing slash abducted child, reward, reward, reward. Where'd you get this, Miller said, and Avery jerked his head toward the bar. Dude's handing them out, he said. Miller knew who it was before he saw him, and then there he was, Connor, glowing, handing out flyers to people still pouring from the theaters, ladies putting hands on his shoulder, men looking up from the flyer and around the room. Miller turned away and looked at the pictures of him and Carlene again, the words, reward, reward, reward. I know it's not true, Avery said, but what I'm saying, of course it's not true, Miller hissed. 
He told Avery about Connor and Lizzie, so why would he think Connor could ever say anything true? Whatever it is, Avery said, it's not good. They needed to go, now, but Carlene was somewhere in the long line in the ladies' room. It was so much worse than not good. Connor in the same damn room with them. Watch him, Miller said. I am, Avery said. There was electricity in Miller's guts, vibrating, making him shake. He tried to make himself small, hoping no one had spotted him, that the cops weren't all over the room, not that he could show his face to look, not with his face on that. Get out of here, Avery said. What, Miller said? Get out, Avery said. He couldn't just leave. If Connor saw her, he'd make a move and... They'll see you if you're with her, Avery said. The two of you together. Just get her, Miller said. And Avery said, go. And Miller went, head bowed, heart thumping, waiting for the knife, the club, the cuffs. Not quite enough air to breathe. And then he was out the door, Carlene behind with Connor. Everything about it wrong. I love her like a fire She's told that I'm spoiled Well, yeah, girl, that's probably And you say by the Chapter 6, Part 4 Outside, he tried to breathe. He had to keep it together to get her away from the roundup and out of town. There wasn't any smoke anymore. Hadn't been for days, but he hadn't noticed till now when he was trying to breathe. Maybe the fires were under control. Maybe the winds had shifted. Inside, Avery was watching Connor, who Miller could see through the plate windows, handing out flyers, people looking up and away from the photographs of Miller and Carlene under stacked text that read, Reward, reward, reward. Missing slash abducted child. Reward, reward, reward. And over Carlene's photo on the left, Have you seen this child? Carlene Callahan, and over Miller's photo on the right, have you seen this man, Miller Kane? And under the photos, a block of text. Carlene Callahan was last seen in Mount Vernon, Washington, in the unlawful custody of Miller Kane, a known liar and sex offender, traveling in a beat-up motorhome covered in bumper stickers. If you've seen these people, please contact Carlene's father, Connor Callahan. Any information leading to her rescue will result in a $250,000 reward, all the money I've been able to scrape together by the will of God. And across the bottom, a phone number and more words. Please help me find my little girl. Miller would kill him. He'd get a gun and shoot him, and then Miller and Lizzie would both be in jail because of him. All of Carlene's parents gone. So no. They'd go, get far enough away to never see him again, even though he deserved more pain than anyone would ever be able to give him. Miller didn't see any cops, and no one was paying attention to him, a dude outside hunched over his phone, like any dude waiting. Then somebody bumped him, and Miller swirled. Sorry, an old man said, sort of panicky, holding up one hand with a cane in it, his other arm on the shoulder of a younger woman, his daughter maybe, steadying him. From the old man's reaction, Miller knew he looked insane now, murderous. No, Miller said, I'm sorry, holding up his hands. My fault, he said, which was ridiculous. He'd just been standing there when the old man bumped him. He hunched back over his phone, but heard the daughter say as they walked away, wasn't that him? 
Who? the old man said. That guy on the flyer. Miller started walking the other direction, head down, not too fast, not too slow, just walking. Everyone could see him now, but they wouldn't see Carlene because she was with Avery. Connor might see her, though, not that he'd seen her in years. Miller kept his eyes on his feet. He had no idea how many people had seen that flyer, how many would recognize him. Carlene had her cowgirl hat. He had nothing. He texted Avery to meet him at the car to make sure Carlene wore her hat. Everyone can see me, he wrote. Say cool, Avery wrote back. We'll get there when we can. Is she out? Busy now, Avery wrote. What did that mean? Miller wrote, what's happening? But Avery didn't respond. Miller kept walking, the crowd thinning. Another four or five blocks and the people could have been from anywhere. Bars, restaurants, nobody left from Happy Canyon. But for Connor to call him a sex offender. Him, when Connor was the one who'd left her, neglected her, was still neglecting her, hurting her worse now than ever. Desperate was what Connor was. That craven, despicable, because she was far more Miller's than anyone's. Miller tasting the dust of Connor's bones as he ground down into them, his jaw throbbing, because if he hadn't always been her father, he always would be now. Better to get the gun and learn how to use it and put him out of his misery. But no, get it just to stop him for self-defense. His phone buzzed with a text from Avery. Moving, it said. Miller didn't dare hope they were okay. Not yet. There was a gas station with a bathroom door he walked through, locking it behind him. He needed a minute out of the crowd to settle himself. But taped to the mirror was the flyer. He tore it down, balled it up, threw it away. He slipped out, away from the light, toward Avery's car. They weren't there. He leaned against a tree trunk in the dark, watching. And then he heard them down the block, a murmur that could have been anyone, then Carlene's voice. I love my cowgirl hat, she said. She seemed normal, fine. I do too, Avery said. She didn't know anything, hadn't seen anything. Miller waited until they were almost to the car before stepping out of the shadow. Hey there, he said, trying to seem as normal as Carlene. Hi, Miller, she said. Are you sick? Not anymore, Miller said, feeling better. They got in the car. Let's go, Miller said. Yep, Avery said, pulling out. Carlene talked about Happy Canyon, the part that seemed real, like the Indians at first, and the parts that didn't seem real, like everyone dancing together. Avery talked with her. Miller looked back and couldn't tell if anyone was following them or not. He'd been awake for 39 hours. Once they got on the interstate and the miles unfolded, he started to settle into his seat. It was a miracle nobody had seen them, if it was even true. Miller didn't know anything, except that they had to leave now, tonight, as soon as they got to Shelley's place in the Grand. He texted Monica. Something came up, he wrote. We can't do tonight. And Monica wrote, tomorrow maybe? I screwed something up, Miller wrote. Some business. We have to go tonight. I'll tell you about it later, I promise. Okay, Monica wrote back. Soon, I hope. Then she texted seven hearts, and Miller texted ten hearts back like they were 12 years old. He couldn't tell her anything, ever. He shouldn't have told Avery or Dina or Mickey or Grace or Kara. They were all contaminated now. When they pulled down Shelley's long driveway, the house was dark. Sweetie, Miller said to Carlene, I just got a text from Monica. She and Bella can't do tonight. What? Carlene said. Why? I don't know why exactly, Miller said. Well, we can see them tomorrow, Carlene said. 
Miller waited a second and then said, No, we can't, sweetie. There was nobody behind them, but that didn't mean anything anymore. Why, Carlene said. Because we have to leave tonight. What? No. Why? I made a mistake, Miller said. But we're going to see those guys later. When? I'm not sure. What mistake? I was supposed to have something for George, Miller said, based on a place in Montana. We have to go there. Remember George, the editor of our book? Avery parked in Shelley's dirt driveway, opened his door. I don't care about George, Carlene said. I know, Miller said. Avery stepped out of the car. I don't care about our stupid book, Carlene said, unbuckling her seatbelt. Okay, Miller said. I want to have a sleepover, Carlene said, with Bella. I know, Miller said. I screwed up. I'm sorry. It's not fair, Carlene said, opening her door. I know, Miller said. Stop saying that, Carlene said. Just stop. She got out of the car and walked toward the motorhome. They said goodbye to Avery and Shelley, settled into the motorhome and pulled out. Carlene silent and furious in her seat beside him as he drove them east and away. And even if everyone in Oregon had seen that flyer, and everyone in Washington, no one in Wyoming had probably, no one in Nebraska, no one in Tennessee or Florida. He just had to keep driving till they were far enough away. Carlene fumed until she finally fell asleep while Miller drove and drove and drove through the night. Chapter 6, Part 5 And then he couldn't drive anymore, everything blurring outside his windshield. He pulled over and parked in the same rust area near Twin Falls where he'd stopped on his way home from Rosedale all those months ago on his way to pick up Carlene on the peninsula. He'd been so confident in his ability to rescue her then. All he had to do was pick her up, get on the road, and stay ahead of Connor. But now... Jesus. He didn't know what to do or where to go, and Connor wouldn't stop coming. Worse, both Miller and Carlene were wearing out, when they hadn't even left the Northwest yet. He went around to her side of the motorhome and unbuckled her seatbelt, her arms reaching around his neck as he lifted her. He carried her through the side door and up to her loft above the front seats, her face marked with lines from the fabric she'd been sleeping against. He put pajamas into her hands, which she changed into, eyes closed before flopping onto her bed. Miller walked back to his room, flopping onto his bed as hard as Carlene had, and when he woke hours later, it was still black and silent, just before dawn, probably. He checked his phone. Twenty minutes had gone by. He could hear the faint stream of cars on the interstate in the western night. His phone buzzed with another text from Monica, and he texted back how sorry he was to have left like that. Maybe Miller and Carlene would find a permanent place, and Bella and Monica would join them, or at least visit. Connor would have to give up at some point, wouldn't he? And Lizzie would get out of jail at some point, too. Surely that would be best for everyone. Miller opened his notebook. George had hated the last two hero villains, had hated them all, probably, but Miller thought they were more true and accurate than anything he'd ever written. He and Carlene would write them together. There'd be a market for that, a fake father-daughter team rewriting American history. Avery would get involved, too, and Monica. It was funny how far he felt from Lizzie. 
He'd loved her forever, but now she seemed to be fading. And not because of Monica. It had more to do with Carlene somehow, but he didn't know how or why exactly. Maybe there wasn't a reason. It made him feel guilty, her rotting in jail like that, while he and Carlene were out here free, sort of. He uncapped his pen and started to write. Hero Villain 6. Rose Kennedy and Buffalo Bill, an American love story. Yes, there were others, Ma Barker and Annie Oakley and Eleanor Roosevelt and Kit Carson and Nancy Davis, later Reagan, and what they said about her was true, all of it. But it was Rose, mostly, even with that awful husband of hers, Joe, giving the lie to Sylvia Plath's line about every woman adoring a fascist. Because Rose hated Joe. It was Buffalo Bill she loved and the litter of Kennedy dolls he sired. And it was Rose Buffalo Bill loved, though there were thousands of others. Amelia Earhart and P.T. Barnum and Calamity Jane and Curious George Custer. But mostly it was Rose at the Plaza, the Heathman, the Biltmore, the Drake, in Bill's tent, Bill's train car, at the ranch in Nebraska, and the compound on Cape Cod where they cultivated those unbearable accents. Bill wanted to have Joe whacked. Dino would do it. But Rose said no, and Bill would do anything for Rose, except that thing Meatloaf also wouldn't do, the unnameable, the unknowable. Perhaps you've learned what you know about sex from the internet or in health class, useful information regarding condoms and periods. Perhaps your parents gave you a book or a friend enlightened you late at night. But whatever you know and whatever you do, you should be doing it often, even if it wears you out and reminds you of death, which famous writers think about all the time. Sex and death and death and sex and sex in the moon if you're a poet. For Hemingway, it was sex and death and sex and food and wine and sex and bulls and fishing. But not for George and Martha. Not for Abe and Mary Todd or Nancy and Ronnie or Dick and Pat Nixon, for whom the loving never stopped. Dick and Pat, Tallahassee log rolling in the Lincoln bedroom up to the very moment of Dick's resignation. Perhaps you'll succeed in love like these Americans, transcending death like Rose and Buffalo Bill. I will never allow myself to be vanquished or annihilated, Rose Kennedy said after four of her nine children had been annihilated and one, her namesake, lobotomized. She had 75 legitimate grandchildren and nobody knows how many great-grandchildren and somehow, through all that annihilation, she thrived because she was Honey Fitz's daughter, F. Scott's sister, the Kennedy doll's mother, America's grandmother, Catholic, but also a wasp, a pie baker and a homemaker, the best lover Buffalo Bill ever had and he'd had them all, Milton Berle and Bonnie Parker and Mother Teresa and Joyce Heth, who Barnum introduced him to in 1835, claiming she was George Washington's 160-year-old mammy. Bill was as big a liar as Barnum was, the root of both men's heroic villainy, encouraging Americans to call out fraud and feel smarter than we ever actually were. Because we knew Joyce Heth wasn't really Washington's mammy, that the Fiji mermaid wasn't really a mermaid, that Buffalo Bill never really rode with the Pony Express or spied for the Union Army. 
Seeing truth through the lie felt like uncovering a secret, like we weren't always at the mercy of forces beyond our control, like we were finally on the inside. People have tried forever to hide what's really going on. Your parents, for example, right this minute, with each other, yes, but also with your bus driver and the mean lunch lady and the nice lunch lady and your piano teacher. Perhaps you're familiar with Occam's razor, the idea that simple solutions are more likely than complex ones, that most things are as they seem, your parents doing what they do, and your grandparents too, and their grandparents, and Adam and Eve, and their neighbors, and your French teacher, and the janitorial staff, and your cross-country coach, and all the gym teachers with each other always, but nobody more than Rose and Buffalo Bill. Cunning clover thimble, Gertrude Stein wrote. Cunning of everything. What you've heard about Alice B. Toklas is true. The pie, the whiskey, her deep fulfillment of Gertrude Stein. Cow come out, cow come out and out and smell a little, Stein wrote. It's Occam's razor and Cleveland steamer, Pascal's wager and Emma's cleaver. It's Bill and Rose sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Little slam up, Gertrude Stein wrote, cold seam peaches. It's Sam the Butcher. Do you know the rest of that one? Have you heard the good part? A fat Clemenza, Rose said. An Omaha plowboy, Buffalo Bill said. The bruise knuckled knock of me, Nance Van Winkle said. Sex and death and death and sex and sex and massacres too. Is it possible the shooters wouldn't be shooters if they knew what Rose and Buffalo Bill knew, or if they worried less about not knowing? All we know is that Rose's husband, Joe, would not stop coming after them. They could hardly stay a step ahead. The reason Bill invented the Wild West in the first place, all that horse crap and gun smoke, until finally Joe caught them and killed them both, deader than hell, with his bruised, knuckled hands. But that's not true. That's not possible. This is a love story, not a massacre. Rose and Bill sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, wrapped in each other's arms and the afterglow of American twilight forever. You've been listening to Miller Kane, a true and exact history, a novel by Samuel Ligon, published in weekly installments by The Inlander, with archived audio at spokanepublicradio.org slash millercane. Our theme music is by Indian Goat. I'm your producer, Chris Massini. Join us next week for the latest episode of Miller Kane.